sometimes, I feel like my body was thrown together from spare parts, discards found by a junkyard hound, a jaw with two missing teeth, a foot with a weird middle toe that curls under like a scared puppy. It's the toe of a spy, the foot reader divined. The real story goes that on the night I was conceived, my mother attached a shiny bow to her pubis, and she presented herself to my father as a late Christmas present. Keep in mind, this was one of those bows with the adhesive backing, and my mother, she likes to keep things au naturel down there, that is, she doesn't shave. So, you can just imagine what it was like for her when my dad ripped the bow from her hairy vagina. And I just feel like, maybe, that should have been a sign that this was not a good idea. Yet, even as my failures accumulate, as my life seems to shrink in on itself like a vortex at the center of a black hole. I try to make the best of my existence, even as my skin withers and my internal organs sink towards the floor, and even as my desire to keep going falters, even as I see my future and my mother's past, just as clearly as I can see her rash, unhinged temper in the way I ball up my fist and scrunch up my face like a two-year-old whenever things go wrong. About six years ago, things went wrong for my mother, as her bladder attempted to escape her body by way of her vagina. A prolapse, they call it. And as I feel the pulls of gravity end up time on my body, I wonder how long before my bladder tries to make a break for it. Wonder every time I wake up in the middle of the night and shuffle bleary-eyed to the bathroom or have to make a pit stop in the middle of a workout. My mother blamed me, of course, me and my 8.5-pound baby self traveling breech-backwards down her birth canal and out the same hole that her bladder was now attempting to exit. She blames me for all of her physical ailments, which is only fair, seeing as I blame her for all of my mental ones. My mother, she didn't mind so much that her bladder was trying to depart, as she did the symptoms that came with it. This constant feeling like she had to urinate, and the frustrating inability to do so. Then one day, as my mother was sitting on the toilet, she balled up her fists and scrunched up her face, and with all the foresight of a two-year-old, she tried to pull her bladder out through her vagina. Literally, the woman stuck two fingers into her vagina, wrapped them around her falling bladder, or at least what she thought was her bladder, God only knows what she found, and she tried to wrench it from her body. Once again, I feel like there were signs that, maybe, genetics were not in our favor. 
though, in retrospect, her lack of foresight about the Christmas bow adhesive seems comparatively mild. She went to the doctor, and to her credit, she admitted what she had done, and his jaw fell open, and he blinked a couple of times and shook his head, and she's like, you can't tell me that I'm the only one who's ever tried to do that. Accepting at long last that she needed a surgeon, a proper surgeon, to effectuate repairs, she allowed the doctor to sew her bladder into place. He also removed one ovary while he was at it. He couldn't find the other one. God only knows what happened to it. An hour or so later, alarms around my mother's hospital bed started to go crazy as her blood pressure dropped dangerously low. She was bleeding internally, and the doctor cut a long, thick scar across her stomach, and her heart stopped. Twice. And when she woke up, it was dark outside, and she thought, What the fuck is this? I should have been awake hours ago. And the stupid thing is that, while I don't hold much stock in heaven or hell or the like, it bothered me nonetheless when I found out that my mother had been dead for several minutes, yet she saw nothing. No light, no dark, no boat on the river Styx to ferry her to Hades. Nothing. I went to sleep, and I woke up, she said, and that was it. I didn't see anything either. Back when I was about eight years old, I was swimming back and forth across the pool when my legs just suddenly stopped working, and I sunk to the bottom. The last thing I remember was marveling at how smooth the bottom of the deep end of the pool felt. Nothing like the shallow end where traction-pebbled flooring stabs your feet. I, I don't know that I died, maybe just blacked out before the lifeguard finally fished me out of the water. I do know that every swim lesson that followed, my mother made the half-hour drive to the pool, and she sat on the edge and stared down the swimming instructor, as though daring her to fuck up and to lose sight of me again. I also know that I didn't see anything while I was down there. No light, no dark, no boat on the river Styx to ferry me to Hades. Nothing. Eighteen ninety five in Butte, Montana, started with an explosion that killed at least fifty seven people and ended with a fight between two undertakers over a 19-year-old dishwasher's body. From mining disasters to arson for profit to labor riots and the murder of unionist Frank Little, Butte, Montana has no shortage of disconcerting stories to tell, and sometimes I look around the city in awe that anything has survived. 
to spare Butte from tragedies like the Great Chicago and Boston Fires in 1871 and 72, respectively, the city enacted a so-called Brick Ordinance in 1893, which specified that all buildings constructed thereafter had to be built of incombustible materials. Like any regulation, this one was good in theory, but unequal to the power of arson, a carelessness, and a large store of dynamite. On the evening of January 15, 1895, the fire alarm went off at what would become known as Fateful Box 72, located in Butte's warehouse district. As smoke poured from the Kenyon Connell Commercial Company, nine firemen from the central fire station responded to the call. Only two of them would survive the night. Unaware that an illegal cache of explosives was being stored in the Kenyon's basement, firefighters encircled the blaze and, at 10.08 p.m., or about 13 minutes after the first alarm had sounded, the building exploded. The force of the explosion was experienced for miles and miles, and people, including guests from the nearby Butte Hotel, flocked to the scene to aid in removing the dead and the injured. As the crowd grew, sparks from the canyon set neighboring buildings alight, and a second explosion ripped through the Butte Hardware Company. That warehouse stored everything from wheelbarrows to stoves to sheets of corrugated iron and rabble heads. The latter had been stacked around yet another illegal stash of dynamite for added security, and the force propelled these items in every direction. They tore through buildings and carriages, and through the good Samaritans who had gathered in the street. They cut through their chests and tore limbs from their bodies. For days afterwards, residents sifting through the remains found sticks of frozen dynamite strewn across uptown Butte, and ghoulish characters carted away macabre souvenirs. A Centerville man was, quote, thrilled to have found two human ribs to take home, and another man made off with a piece of a human skull. That would be one hell of a thing to find in your dear granddad's old trunk after he passed away. Before lawsuits against the Kenyan had even made it to court, a book about the tragedy hit the shelves. The Great Dynamite Explosions at Butte, Montana, January 15th, 1895, by John Francis Davies, published by the Butte Bystander that same year. To help cover the printing costs, multiple advertisements, including one for the Butte Hotel, appeared in the back of the book. The advertisement, which describes the hotel as a first-class, elegantly furnished, and centrally located establishment, does not mention that at least one of their guests, a lawyer from Idaho named Joe Miller, had died in the second explosion. 
nor does it mention Thomas Lynch, the dishwasher murdered in the hotel kitchen. Built upon the ashes of the St. Nicholas Hotel, likely another victim of fire, the Butte Hotel was a swanky four-story retreat that charged a whopping three to five dollars per night, or about a hundred and fifty dollars in 2021 currency, or almost twice as much as your modern-day traveler might expect to pay for a night's lodging in Butte, Montana. Staff quarters in the basement housed what appears to have been a largely itinerant workforce, for those on duty in the kitchen and on the grounds on October 28, 1895, had been employed at the hotel for only a few days or weeks. One such person was 19-year-old Thomas Lynch. At about 3 p.m., Tom went in search of a mop so he could finish cleaning up the kitchen after lunch, and he borrowed one from the basement. On his way upstairs, he found a bar of soap on the steps, and he snagged that as well. As Tom began to scour the floor, his co-worker, Dave Mansfield, charged upstairs. The mop, he said, belonged in the basement, and the soap. Well, he was mad about the soap, too, but nobody quite understood why. As Dave reached for the soap, he threatened to knock Tom's head off. To this, Tom replied that Dave wasn't big enough to knock his head off. This, my friends, is the definition of a petty dispute. Charles Lane and William Moon, who were also working in the kitchen that day, poked their heads around the corner, and they saw Dave turn on a hill and start towards the stairs. Tom grabbed a cider bottle off a nearby table and said, "'Just you wait,' as he lunged at Dave. Unafraid, the surly man continued downstairs, as though to show Tom just how inconsequential he thought he was. And the young dishwasher lowered his arm and returned the bottle to the table and went back to scrubbing the floor. As Tom swished the mop across the floor, water trickled down the stairs to the floor below. Minutes later, Dave flew back upstairs and said, You! followed by several epithets that were apparently unfit for print. If you let that water run down here again, I will cut your heart out. Tom, who was the eldest of eight siblings and, quote, a good-natured and full of fun and kindly disposed towards everyone, and who didn't think Dave was serious, playfully tapped Dave with the straw end of the broom and said, Oh, you wouldn't do that. Though in the city for less than two years, Dave had worked at various restaurants and hotels around Butte and was a well-known character, and not because he had a good sense of humor. And Dave was serious, and he drew a large potato knife and aimed it at Tom's chest. 
Scared, Tom grabbed a nearby chair and hit Dave across the head. Then he ran into the pantry. As Dave came at him again, Tom reached for the cider bottle, but as he brought it around and aimed it at Dave's head, the knife entered his chest. Tom cried out, Oh my God, he's cut me. Dave took another swipe at him, but Tom leapt onto a table, then threw himself out a window and into the backyard. Though badly injured, he ran for the nearest doctor's office. It wasn't far, less than a two-minute walk from the hotel, in the so-called Beaver Block on the northeast corner of Granite and Main. Tom left a distinct trail of blood as he crossed the vacant lot and turned onto Granite Street. He collapsed just outside Dr. McNevin's door. The doctor, it turned out, wasn't in, and Tom lay on the floor and rolled around in agony until some pedestrians came to his aid. While someone went to fetch a doctor, a man named Hayes Cannon ran down Maine to Broadway, where policeman Joseph Sincel was on duty. Officer Sincel arrived at the Beaver Block just as Tom was being loaded onto a carriage bound for Murray and Freund's hospital. He rode with Tom to the hospital, where the young man would surely die, then rushed to the Butte Hotel. Officer Sincel made his way to the basement and knocked on Dave's door. He was about to break it down when the lock clicked and the door swung open. Dave, who was in the midst of putting a suit over his blood-stained clothing, was clearly in a panic, for he hadn't even bothered to wash the blood from his hands first before getting dressed. He seemed, quote, excited, and when Sincel asked him what he'd done, Dave was like, oh, we just had a little scrap, it was nothing, and he handed over the knife. You have probably killed that man, said the officer. Oh no, replied Dave, I only gave him a slight scratch. Mansfield was, of course, arrested and taken to jail. Back in St. Paul, Minnesota, Michael Lynch picked up the paper, and as he scanned the headlines, his eyes fell upon the name of his eldest son. Soon thereafter, he received a telegraph that bore the grim news of the stabbing, and he was on the next train, so that he could be at his son's bedside when the end finally came. Though close to a year had passed since the unchecked store of dynamite had raised Kenyon and the hardware company to the ground, victims, many who had lost limbs, were still recuperating and widows still grieving their loss. And you would think the last thing that anyone in Butte would have wanted was to risk a repeat of the tragedy. But there's always one, at least one, outlier. And in October of 1895, a firebug was on the loose. 
At 11 p.m. on October 30th, an alarm from fateful Box 72's neighbor, Box 71, called the fire department to the Sherman Undertaking Company. As the fire company took off for the Sherman building, more smoke began to pour from the basement of the Butte Undertaking Company. Its main proprietor, Joseph Richards, ran into the room where the coffins were stored and where a small flame was threatening to consume the lot. Joe threw a couple of buckets of water on the blaze, breathed a sigh of relief, and headed back to bed. Meanwhile, firemen began to douse the flames at the Sherman warehouse, whose owners, thankfully, did not deal in dynamite, but in coffins and pianos. As they worked, another alarm sounded, this time from Box 62. The Butte Undertaking Company was on fire again. When a fire crew arrived at the second blaze, they were forced to cut a hole in the sidewalk to access a chamber where Joe had stored bales of excelsior, which is basically casket bedding, and they quickly got the fire under control. Joe was lucky, and he only suffered about $100 in damages. The Sherman, meanwhile, was completely destroyed. But, and once again, thankfully, this time everyone survived. For the next three weeks, Michael Lynch stayed at the hospital as Tom's body slowly mended itself. He was going to live after all. Michael also attempted to see Dave Mansfield in prison, but he arrived after visiting hours had ended, and the guards denied him entry. He had no desire, he said, to harm his son's attacker, only to speak with him. Shortly thereafter, and with his son's recovery all but assured, Michael returned home. Then on Saturday, November 30th, almost a full month after Tom had been stabbed, he felt an intense pain in his chest that persisted through the weekend. When doctors reopened the wound, they found a good deal of pus and inflammation around the lung, a sure sign of infection, and decomposed matter and debris in Tom's blood, which they removed. Then they washed his chest and made an incision to drain the abscess. Then, at 5 p.m. on Monday, December 2nd, Tom died. His body was removed to the Butte Undertaking Company, which was, at the time, one of the city's most successful undertakers. And owner, Joe Richards, was also the city's chief coroner. Joe would not only prepare Tom's body for burial, he would also oversee the inquest into Tom's death to determine whether Dave Mansfield would stand trial for murder. If all of this sounds like a conflict of interest or an ethical quagmire, that's because it is. But from what I found during my research, it wasn't entirely uncommon for a coroner and a mortician to be one in the same. 
though still recuperating from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, more on that in a second, and unable to leave his house, Joe scheduled the inquest into Tom's death for December 3rd at 10 o'clock and would have the witnesses brought to his home at 29 North Idaho Street. Now, following the two attempts in October that a still unknown someone had made to burn his business to the ground, Joe had come to the conclusion that someone was after him. Personally, I think it was someone who hated coffins, or more likely a rival businessman. But seeing as the perpetrator was never apprehended, we just don't know. Paranoid about his safety, Joe had taken to carrying a revolver wherever he went, and he kept it under his pillow at night. Joe spent the evening of November 18, 1895, with friends in Centerville. Then he returned to his room at about 11 p.m. All the lights were out, and so as not to awaken everyone else in the house, he got undressed in the dark. As he climbed into bed, he remembered his revolver, which was still in his overcoat pocket. He took it out and started to shove it under his pillow with the muzzle partly facing him. And you can all see where this is going. The hammer caught on the fabric and was raised far enough so that when it was released, the cartridge exploded. The bullet struck Joe about an inch below the right eye, glanced off his cheekbone, and lodged under the skin just below his right temple. Doctors were able to extract the bullet, and Joe would be just fine, and maybe a little wiser about gun safety in the future. On December 3rd, the inquest into Tom's death got underway. Charles Lane and William Moon, the two employees who had been in the kitchen that day, had been held at the county jail as witnesses since the day of the stabbing, which would suck, and officers transported them to the coroner's house, along with a couple of other people who had either witnessed the event or the aftermath, and their testimony combined left no doubt that Dave had stabbed Tom and that he had been the aggressor. His knife had entered Tom's body, just above the diaphragm, between the sixth and seventh ribs on the right side of his body, and it had punctured his lung. As Tom was an otherwise healthy 19-year-old, the wound undoubtedly led to his death. And the grand jury officially indicted Dave Mansfield for murder. Following the inquest, Joe Richards turned Tom's body over to himself, because he wasn't above self-dealing. As coroner, he did have a duty to see that all unclaimed or indigent individuals received a decent burial. The trouble was, Tom was neither of those things for his uncle Roger had already paid one of Joe's competitors, J.J. Gilligan of Gilligan and Dugan Funeral Home, to prepare the body, 
Gilligan, demanded that Joe turn over the body. But by then, Joe had already embalmed Tom, and having put all of that time and money into preparing the corpse, Joe wasn't willing to just turn it over. He demanded $25 to cover the cost, which Thomas's uncle refused to pay. Instead, Roger filed a petition to claim the body, but Judge Spear refused to even hear the case because he did not want to take part in a fight between the undertakers, which, I mean, what the fuck is the point of your job then? as a judge, if you're not willing to settle a dispute. Roger's attorney drew up a complaint which essentially said that Tom's body, which the attorney valued at about $1,000, I have no idea how he came to that number, was Roger's property, and Joe was illegally detaining him. Finally, after Roger went to Joe's house and personally spoke with him, Joe did release the body to Gilligan, and Gilligan ended up reimbursing Joe for the expense that had gone into preparing it. And by all accounts, Joe had done a nice job on the body. And finally, Thomas was laid to rest. On February 8th of 1896, Judge Spears sentenced Dave Mansfield to 25 years in prison, but he was released early after having, quote, won some copper on his sentence, which just means that he was released for good behavior. Dave remained in Butte, and he took a job at one of the local mine yards, and he joined the International Workers of the World Labor Organization, and he began to lecture on behalf of the union. But Dave still had a nasty temper, and in 1915, he drew a gun, and he fired seven shots at one of his co-workers. This is not, I think, a man that you want to work with. The person on the other end of Dave's gun barrel was a mine guard named John Parks. Thank goodness for John that Dave was a terrible shot. Or he would have gone the way of Tom Monroe, who was, or had been, another mine guard, who had been gunned down just several months prior by the vice president of the Butte Mine Workers Union. Just as he had done after he had stabbed Tom, Dave ran back to his room, but unlike Officer Sincel, a Sheriff Charles S. Henderson didn't bother to knock, and when he broke down the door, Dave made a dive for the gun. The Sheriff, the Undersheriff, and deputies covered him, and Dave finally gave up. I was unable to find any record of what happened to Dave Mansfield after that. I mean, who knows? Maybe the man finally learned to manage his temper. 
Not long after the dynamite explosion, the Butte Fire Department outgrew the City Hall Fire Station, once home to the ill-fated firefighters of 1895, and they relocated to the Quartz Street Station, which is now home to the Butte Silver Bow Public Archives. And at least one employee claims the building is haunted and has seen a ghost in the window. For many years following the tragedy, some might say that Butte itself was haunted by the explosion. Not to be dramatic or anything. An unknown number of survivors, unable to bear the guilt and loss of their loved ones, committed suicide soon after the tragedy. And in probably the saddest fucking story to come out of the whole affair... In the explosion's aftermath, a large black dog, who had been Fireman William Copeland's loyal companion, had waited at the scene as his master's body was pulled from the rubble, and he had followed alongside as the body was transported to the church, then to Mount Moriah Cemetery. Days later, the cemetery's gatekeeper, found the dog had froze to death while lying atop William's grave. Sophia Goddard, widow of Albert Goddard, filed suit against the Kenyon Connell Company, and a jury awarded her $5,000 in damages on December 22nd of 1895. However, the Kenyon already owed its creditors more than $58,000, an amount that far exceeded the company's value. As those creditors were first in line for payment, Mrs. Goddard and the other victims would never see any money. Not from the company, anyway, and not from those at fault but organizations and individuals from across Montana and beyond donated generously to the relief fund. The State Savings Bank of Butte had leased the warehouse to the Kenyon Connell Company, but had nothing to do with its day-to-day -day operations. Nevertheless, the bank's president, Patrick A. Largy, helped dozens of survivors find jobs, and he bankrolled their business ventures. Thomas Riley, a miner who had lost his leg in the explosion, was hired for six jobs on Patrick's recommendation, and he lost all of them. He also received a sizable donation of $1,500, or about 47,000 in 2021 currency, from Patrick and two other prominent citizens. Yet, Thomas remained bitter and angry. On January 11th of 1898, almost three years to the day after the explosion, Thomas entered the state savings bank at about 1 p.m. Patrick came to the counter and the two men talked for about ten minutes. No one knows what was said, but the conversation appeared friendly. That is, until Thomas pulled out a gun and shot Patrick twice, once in the arm and once in the head. 
As Thomas made his way for the door, he shot at several people who had huddled behind the railing, and he narrowly missed striking one of the clerks. William Houston, one of the bank's customers, followed Thomas down the street and called out for someone to arrest him. The commotion attracted officers to the scene, and they carted Thomas off to jail. As officers transferred him to his cell, Thomas exclaimed that Patrick had, He fooled me for too long and I killed him. He kept promising me work, and he didn't give me any, and I could not stand it any longer. Now if you want to hang me for it, all right. Give me a quick trial and end it. Many people in Butte were more than ready to give Thomas the quick end he had asked for. He had just assassinated one of the city's favorite citizens, after all. And as calls to forego a trial and to hang Thomas from the courthouse steps grew louder, jailers smuggled Thomas along with four other men who had been accused of murder and who happened to be confined to the jail at the same time, out of town in the poor farm ambulance and took them to Deer Lodge Prison and out of the mob's reach. As though thumbing its nose at the city's brick ordinance, Butte continued to burn throughout the 20th century. During the 1960s and 70s, or what historian Richard Gibson calls Butte's Era of Destruction, rampant fires of a questionable origin, read Arson for Insurance, laid waste to the business district. Twelve buildings were destroyed in just one night in what William J. Clark, not to be confused with mining magnate William A. Clark, in what William described as a fiery holocaust. Brick also failed to save the Butte Hotel. It caught fire in 1901 and again in the 1940s, before it was renovated and turned into apartments in 1953. Less than a year later, a fire finally destroyed the building for good and left its 125 tenants homeless. Likewise, a fire claimed Butte's beaver block in 1968. Now, a superstitious person might say that Thomas's murder had somehow cursed the land, but a closer look says that the city was cursed long before Thomas died. The Butte Undertaking Company, of all places, has survived into the 21st century, and it's part of Butte's National Historic Landmark District. It is, I would say, a dilapidated building scrunched between two other dilapidated buildings, which is a good general descriptor of Uptown Butte. But, like the city itself, it is a, a well-worn survivor. <laughs>